0: Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church. We are the Sanchez family. My name is Daniel. I'm Naomi. We are so glad you can join us this morning. Whether you are a regular attender or you are new to our community, you are so, so welcome to Christ Church. We are so blessed that you are here with us. And um, like the psalmist said, better one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. Now, Let us enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Amen. Forever, all my days, I will love you, God.
1: Our gracious God, we just thank you for the reality that we have been singing about. That as tumultuous and full of turmoil as our lives are, you are nonetheless in The midst of all of this with us. We thank you for your sovereign hand, for your redemptive love, for your power to bring forth new life in circumstances where that life is so needed. Uh, So we honor you today. We praise you. We're so grateful to be together and pray that you will receive the glory and that we will be strengthened to be a force of blessing in this world. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is uh, truly a marvelous thing to be together today, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for being part of this uh, extended family that is Christ Church. Uh, If you're a newcomer today, we're especially thrilled that you can be joining into this circle and uh, hope and pray that you'll find our time of worship to be a real encouragement uh, to you. I want to also welcome back to the pulpit, back to the speaking platform of Christ Church, uh, the Reverend Tracy Bianchi, uh, one of our preaching associates, and she's got a very powerful message uh, to share with us today that I think you'll find extraordinarily timely for this moment. Uh, I also uh, just want to encourage those of you who were part of the town hall celebration this past week, and express my gratitude that you took the time, some 600 households, Uh, connected with us in our very first online town hall. And if you happen to miss that and would like to know what we were talking about as we explored uh, the redemptive response issues of our era, as we talked about the reopening plans for our church, you can go online. Uh, Just go to our website, uh, click on the Moving Forward tab on the homepage, and you can learn all about that. Actually, you can watch the entire town hall uh, if you so choose. One of the things that many churches, particularly uh, predominantly white churches in our time are doing right now, is rededicating themselves to listening. Uh, We laid out last week a vision for a journey together involving prayer, learning, engagement, and acknowledging. And uh, the listening part of learning may be the most important step alongside of, of coming before God in prayer. Uh, Many of us are listening intently, as we have not maybe ever done before, to the voices of uh, black Christians and uh, the experience and the perspective they're bringing to this era. And uh, in the midst of that endeavor, sometimes we wonder, you know, who do I listen to? Uh, Where should I go for that? And how can I be confident that what I'm hearing uh, is reliable? Well, in that spirit, um, next weekend, we are offering a very special opportunity during our Father's Day celebrations. I'm gonna introduce you to a conversation between one of the most thoughtful Christian pastors of our time and one of his younger protégés. And sort of like uh, St. Paul, the father talking to the son, Timothy, uh, I'm gonna invite you to listen as these two individuals dialogue about the events of our time in a very uh, poignant, heartfelt, and practical way. And I think you're going to walk away from this with some fresh perspective, uh, with your heart personally touched, and with some practical handles on how you as a parent or a grandparent uh, can be in dialogue with others within your family in this very significant time. As a congregation, we are committed in every season of life to trying to be ones who extend the life-changing love of Jesus uh, to others in this world. Uh, We've been touched by that love ourselves. We want to be conduits that pass that love along. And uh, we do that in a lot of different ways in the life of our church family. But one way that we're seeking to do this in days to come is by mounting another food and supplies drive. Actually, the emphasis on this one will be supplies. And this will continue through the end of July. You can find information on your screen about how uh, you can get involved in that, what the particular supplies are that we're looking for. Uh, But let's be love with its sleeves rolled up in this era and uh, offer support and encouragement to other people, even as we'd want it if we found ourselves, and many of us are, finding ourselves in a place of significant need. I am conscious that um, the work of this church extends far beyond the local communities. We're grateful for all of the ways in which we're able to serve here in Chicagoland during this era. But because we are globally networked with mission partners in other parts of the world, we're also deeply aware that as significant as the impact of COVID-19 has been on our lives, our economy, our health situation, it has been profoundly more impactful in many other parts of the world uh, in places like kenya and nigeria and uh, other parts of africa cambodia india uh, people are dealing with just tremendous pain and struggle uh, partly because what COVID has done is interrupt the food supply chain that people depends upon it was a fragile chain to begin with it's been devastated in this time uh, we know, for example, that in Nairobi, Kenya, in the Mathari Valley Slum, where we do active work through our mission partners, uh, that riots are breaking out because people are literally experiencing mass starvation. Uh, in Nigeria, where we also have partners, uh, there are so many struggles that um, there, there's tremendous national strife, orphans and widows uh, in desperate kinds of conditions and needs. And because people in these parts of the world often live in very close quarters without the possibility of doing social distancing uh, in places where there's just a collapsed healthcare system, if there was such a system in the first place, uh, the reality is, is that the virus can move unstoppably at times with very little hope of having it checked. So our heart naturally goes out uh, to our mission partners that are trying to bring some kind of help, some sort of practical hope to people in these times. And because of, of that heart, this congregation has been on the move in recent days, seeking to try and be of assistance. Uh, because of your giving to the uh, Christchurch Fund, it allows us to set aside monies which we have been able to move towards some of these most affected uh, partnerships. And so through your efforts and your continued support, we've selected five of our partners uh, to try and especially aid. And uh, I want to give you a little glimpse into the world of one of them. I want to introduce you, if you've not met him before, to uh, Emmanuel Oluwayemi, who is an extraordinary difference maker in the nation of Nigeria. Take a look at a little bit of his story and what he's seeing.
2: This is Dr. Emmanuel Oluwayemi, president of Life Without Misses International, Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, I just want to give you some report of what we have been able to do as our own response to the fight against COVID-19. And in Nigeria, so many families have been affected. In fact, Lagos is the epicenter of this problem in Nigeria. We decided to produce those things that people will need to use to avoid contracting or spreading the virus. So the first thing we did was to produce a uh, a 500 ml hand sanitizer locally, we put a label on it, a label on it. We've given this to over 2,000 families. People. We're hungry because of the lockdown. So many, many families could not actually have access to food. So, we decided to produce this one. This is uh, uh, six kilograms of rice. We put our label on it and we gave it to several families so that people can have food to eat. So, we've done all of this in order to respond and to help, you know, stem the tide of this big, dangerous uh, epidemics. It's our hope that with this, many families have been saved, many homes have been uh, served and ministered to, and individuals who are also vulnerable have been uh, secured or saved from contracting this virus. But we really need more, because once we want to reach out to more people. It's our belief that if we can do more, Able to save more lives and, uh, and protect more families. We want to thank those of you who have partnered with us, who have helped us financially to be able to do this. We also pray that the Lord will bless you.
1: Thanks to your giving, we have already been able to send support to five of our most affected mission partners in Kenya, Nigeria, Rwanda, India, and the Dominican Republic. Every time you give in support of the ministries of Christ Church, you're also enabling us to support the work of life-changing ministries in some 80 different settings around the world. So I just can't thank you enough that in the midst of this time when I know there's so much pressure on you and your family to attend to your own needs, that your heart is moving outward like God's heart uh, moves outward. And uh, as we take up now our tithes and our offerings, uh, use whatever means is most helpful to you in doing that. But I want to say thank you for being part of this life-changing work.
0: for me, leave the past behind there's no turning back
3: Well, a very good morning to all of you. As Pastor Dan said, my name is Tracy Bianchi, and I have the joy of serving as a member of our teaching team. And today, I am going to walk us through the final installment of our series on the Book of Ruth. Some of you might be joining us today for the first time and perhaps have not had the full experience of this story. I invite you to go back and listen to any of the wonderful sermons from the past few weeks. But I'm going to take us back through some elements of this story and look once again as they lead us to the final verses at what this amazing book and what God's word has to teach us, especially in light of the chaos and the tumult in our world today. Many of us struggle right now with feelings of anxiety, confusion, grief, and anger. And the great gift God gives us is wisdom as it comes to us from his word. Walter Brueggemann, one of my own personal beloved theologians that I've loved to study, says this about God's word. He says, The deep places in our lives, places of resistance and embrace, are reached only by stories, by images and metaphors and phrases that line out the world differently apart from our fear and hurt. So my friends, as we enter into this sacred time today, I pray that God, as he moves through the person of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and their families, that God would outline for us a story of redemption that would remove us from the fear and hurt in our lives and lead us into an unexpected future. You may recall this story has a simple beginning. It begins in verse 1 this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, It seems a simple enough beginning. Why even bother repeating it? A little family of four, but notice how the story begins. No one has a name in the first verse. No one has a name. Now, to be fair, we do not wait long for the names. In fact, the very next sentence reveals the names of the family members, but Remember as we move through our time today that no one has a name when we begin. A famine, as those of you who have been along with us might know, a famine forces this family to migrate from Judah into a new land where later the father Elimelech dies and of course his wife Naomi is grief stricken but she still has two sons to provide for her until tragedy comes again and both of her sons die as well. All of this in the opening paragraph. This journey begins with three bereft widows. Now, it is significant enough that death has three times visited this family, but adding to their struggle is the historical context. In their culture, this was a particularly challenging situation because women had a a lot of limitations and ways they could not move through the world. What mattered for a woman was her compliance, Her ability to serve a husband or provide sons. Who she was, what she desired, how she thought, what she wanted was inconsequential. This is the historical nature of patriarchal cultures throughout the ancient Near East. It's still the patriarchal cultures in some places around the world today. For these women, only a son could carry a family name, and only a son or a husband could own land. Daughters were at times considered a burden. They were married off quickly. They were disposable, an extra mouth to feed Women could not pursue a particular vocation of their choice. They could not vote or defend themselves in a court of law. They were unable to financially provide for themselves. Their marriages were arranged for them. They had limited education. There were rules about where they could and could not go and worship as the women of Israel would go through their mourning rituals. The men could go into the inner courts of the temples and the women would have to stay outside at the northern gate. Only marriage and giving birth specifically to boys mattered. And the inability to do either was grounds for divorce. And because a woman could not own property or advocate for herself, a divorce then meant certain property. So culturally, barren, widowed women were left scattered across the ancient Near East. They were destined for a life of loneliness, abuse, and neglect. So this cultural context hangs over Ruth and Naomi. They understand clearly that this is their future, that the systems of their time have built this future for them. So they must act. And they decide to return to Naomi's home. And she brings with her, as we know, one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, who is the namesake of this book. And as she walks into her hometown The women there greet her by name. But she says to them, don't call me by my name. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. When she walks into town, the women from her past gasp and ask, could this be Naomi? And this is the response she gives them. But notice, who is not mentioned at all in this dialogue? Not a word is said about Ruth. It is an indication of the disdain the community they returned to had for Ruth. She was a Moabite. She was not from their community. She did not come from their line. She was not part of their tribe. They don't even mention her at all. And both women then stand there upon their return to Judah with no family name, with Ruth, with Naomi changing her own name, and they stand ankle deep in the ashes of their lives, and they wait to be invited home, for everything they have is gone. I recently spent an evening up north in Wisconsin. I had my son and some of his friends, my husband, was up there. And one evening, we sat, as people often do, around a campfire, staring at the glowing red embers, listening to the hiss and the spark and the pop of the wood. Bonfires are mesmerizing. We watch the flames dance atop the logs. We have the dark night behind us and the glowing faces of our friends around us and in the waning hours of a campfire there's just warmth and there's a sense of calm peace even that comes from that moment now that particular bonfire did not start out that calm for me my husband was fishing my son was in the canoe with his friends and i thought to myself i'll start the fire for everyone before they get back And over the winter there had amassed a massive pile of dead branches and gray brittle leaves and there were heaps and heaps of pine needles all in the fire ring on the beach. And I thought to myself, this thing's going to go up in flames. (laughs) So I dragged some of the dead timber off and I set it aside and I just kind of kicked some pine needles away. And I I had just seen an episode of Survivor where it took somebody five hours to start a fire. So I thought, this is not going to be that big of a deal. This wood probably won't go up. And so I hastily fashioned this tinder pile off to the side. And then I focused very specifically on what was happening inside the fire ring. And I made this little triangle like they taught us in Girl Scouts. And I didn't pay much attention to the pile of brush that was outside. And I lit the match. And the entire thing inside the ring whoosh went up in a second. And all those little pine needles had trails that led to the brush pile I had pulled off and that I had ranged outside of. And that started to go up behind me. So I was kicking and stamping on that, kicking sand over it. And I had to then run to the other side of the fire ring because the wind started blowing the flames toward the lawn chairs. And I was dragging lawn chairs away, watching leaves and embers dash across the beach. In a second, the entire ring and everything outside of it, the burn pile itself, had gone up in flames and there were ashes flying everywhere. This is Naomi's life. This carefully arranged pile of a husband, gone. The flames don't stop there. They move outside of the ring. Her sons are gone. Her daughters-in-law, childless. Home and community, family to care for them, none. Comforts of home, nope. This all happens in a foreign land. And the flames for her keep moving across the beach, gone. All of it, charred ashes, gone. And she laments, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. How many of us have felt That way at one point in our life, and I know certainly many in our country feel this way now. We arrange the kindling of our lives. We carefully construct this little ring, and we've planned and we've organized. Perhaps we've even dared to dream. Despite whatever struggles we face, we somehow make lives. We fall in love. We learn to laugh. Perhaps we even learn to dance. We pull some circle of people together that we call family. We make a life, and then one day we hear the rip of a match along the sandpaper, and suddenly it's gone, the future engulfed in flames. It goes up quicker than we ever thought because just outside of the careful little lives we build sits a burn pile. It's filled with things that have been dragged over there for centuries, sin and death and despair and injustice and terror and anger and illness and greed. It's filled with broken family systems and broken economic, educational, social, and religious systems. And this pile has been growing since Adam and Eve grabbed that fruit. And at any time, it can and it does go up in flames. One spark here, and we're reminded of the fuel that sets everything on fire events in our world do not happen in isolation they are connected to this type of burn pile i recall the story of a father that i read about whose wife and all of their children were tragically killed by a drunk driver while he was home without them And this doesn't happen in isolation. This is connected to the burn pile of substance abuse and alcoholism that is fueled further by hopelessness and despair. A few years ago, I heard the story of a woman who had survived the Rwandan genocide where she was forced to watch soldiers execute her husband and children connected to the burn pile of war and genocide and racism and terror and fear. Murders like those of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, connected to the burn pile of systemic racism and anger and greed and abuse of power. It goes up in flames in a minute. These events do not happen in isolation and we find ourselves lamenting that the Lord then has brought us back empty the Lord has afflicted me the almighty has brought misfortune upon me some times the pile burns the loss of Naomi's pile the loss of Naomi's life I should say was fueled by the pile of prejudice abusive power Greed and poverty and grief. And we can all but feel the heat on her face as she watches the flames consume her future. She was connected to a system that limited her greatly. And so cloaked in grief, we stand here wondering what will they do? As we've said, they had no resources, but Ruth makes the bold choice. She will not leave her mother-in-law, Naomi, to die alone. Naomi, as we remember, says to her daughters-in-law, go home. You have a chance at a future if you go home. And one takes her up on it. And Ruth knows if she leaves Naomi, Naomi will die. There is no provision for her. So she confidently says, where you go, Naomi, I will go. Where you stay I will stay. Your people, they will be my people. And she opens her heart then to the God of the universe and says, your God will be my God and where you die, I will die. So they travel back up the mountainous strip of land along the eastern shore of the Dead Sea, back home to Naomi's Bethlehem they go. And in their dangerous culture, we unexpectedly find these two women wielding the tenacity, the intellect, the cunning, and the strength to survive that journey. But they return home with only shame as a shelter. And it is from these ashes of despair that God provides an unexpected future. Ruth and Naomi would have returned cloaked in grief. The customs of their day demanded a lengthy period of mourning for the loss of a family member, and here they had three. It required they wear certain clothes, and at moments they would have marked themselves with ashes, a symbol of the lament and grief of that pile That burned their lives. At one point in their story, they start to move beyond this. Ruth identifies her future husband. We know this man, Boaz. And Naomi says to her, go wash up, put on your best clothes and perfume. Basically, she says, pull yourself together. And sure, part of this was put on your best wardrobe to catch the eye of the man, but Carolyn Custis James writes, this encouragement was more than that. It was a way of saying, take off the mourning clothes, remove the ashes, step out of the pile that is defining you now. It is time to forge ahead into a new future. But that only comes from understanding for them what kept them in the ashes in the first place. This is why ashes are such an important symbol of grief and repentance in Scripture. It's why Ruth and Naomi would have marked themselves at some point with them. In Genesis 18... Abraham dares to debate with God and in the process admits, I am nothing, he says, but dust and ashes. Ashes remind us of our finitude, of our connection, of our role in burning and setting on fire that pile. And King David, during one of his great laments, writes, For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. I eat ashes at my food and mingle my drink with tears. And in Jerusalem, eventually, when they prepare for a terrifying siege from their enemies, the prophet Jeremiah tells the people, There is terror on every side. Put on sackcloth, my people, and roll in ashes. Mark yourself with lament." with accountability, with understanding the tragedy that befalls us, the tragedies that come to us, and our role in perpetuating tragedy on others. Grief and lament are uncomfortable, and ancient cultures like the one Ruth and Naomi lived in, they stayed in those spaces longer than we do in our Western cultures, the dominant cultures we share often, encourage us to dash past these moments as quickly as possible. I confess, I want to do that. None of us like to sit necessarily in grief or lament for very long. I mean, it's part of the cultural tension I think we feel right now, whether that's COVID-19 or protests and cries for justice. I hear many people saying, posting perhaps, can't we just move on? Let's post something happy today. Why are we still talking about this? Why are we still sitting in the ashes? And the Bible tells us there are lessons to be learned from the ashes. And woe to us when we move past them too quickly. But in the book of Ruth, when the time was right, God brought Ruth and Boaz to one another, and it was then time to move past the lament and into the unexpected future. And upon their return to Judah, Ruth finds Boaz. And if you want more about who he was, you can go back and listen to Sue Ann and Pastor Dan's sermons from last week. They talk about that with us. But in short, he was respected, known in the community. He was wealthy. He had land, he had resources, he had standing and voice. And he is male, he has a name. His life matters in a way that Ruth and Naomi's did not. You might even use the uncomfortable term and say that Boaz had privilege. So what will he do with his position and power and privilege? Eventually, Ruth, as we know, makes the bold move to propose to Boaz, and he in turn makes the generous decision to welcome her and Naomi as family, to bring them into his life and his family and provide for them. And for Boaz, it would have been easy, because of the systems in place at this time, to dismiss both of these women. I mean, honestly, no one would fault Boaz for skipping right over them, two more mouths to feed. His simple kindness in just letting them gather food safely in his field would have been enough. He could have left them with that life, hunched over and hungry, and it would not have impacted him in any way. He could have separated himself from their pain. No one would have thought much about that choice at all. It was how things were done. But he makes a decision to use his power and his name to honor theirs. Power plays a significant role in this story. It's in some ways the power of poverty, meaning the power of property, It's easy at first glance to say that perhaps Ruth and Naomi were powerless and needed help, so Boaz swoops in to rescue them, and we are thrilled then to read this love story with Boaz as the rescuer, and to be absolutely sure, that is an overarching theme in this text. It is the wonderful love story of these two, giving us a glimpse at the love story of Jesus and the church of God's hearts and ours. God is our Boaz and he redeems us. This much is true. But there's another nuance at play in this story that I think is often overlooked. It's how Boaz and Ruth honored and supported one another and what their coming together and the sharing of their power meant. Ruth and Naomi were actually not completely powerless. To the contrary, to survive, they had to exercise tremendous intellect and power. They were strong, they were savvy, they were discerning, they were creative, they were deeply connected to God. The difference in their power and the power Boaz held was that their power was not recognized by the systems of their time. And in fact, many of those systems were designed to undermine and extinguish that power. They lacked institutional power and social power, but Ruth and Naomi had power. They had the creative power of God running through them from the moment they were brought into life. Andy Crouch defines biblical power as the ability to make something of the world. He goes on to suggest that this something is the stuff we make, of course, from raw materials and nature, but he also says it is the meaning that we make of the world. Every human being, regardless of how limited their lives may be by oppression, have some level of power, and that is the power to make meaning of their world. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. This is good power. And I think this is the truth of people throughout history and around the world who are on the receiving end of acts of injustice. Acts that desperately try to strip them of their power, whether the darkness of the modern sex trade systemic racism, or people held in captivity during any number of horrific genocides. Captors can press systems upon people that extinguish their very lives, but they cannot ever extinguish the power of God inside another human being. They still can create and make meaning, and no one can ever take that away. And this is part of why some of the most stunning hymns and spirituals and poetry and prose and art ever created are born out of oppression, whether slaves in a cotton field or captives in a Nazi concentration camp. The problem was not that Ruth and Naomi were powerless. The problem was that the world did not honor their power and the imprint of the divine in their lives. And if they did dare to try to exercise this divine power within them, the systems of their day were designed to immediately destroy its fruit. To recognize the power of God inside a person then is to see them as an equal. As the beloved of God standing ankle deep in the burn pile just like us which makes then the refusal to encourage and develop the creative power inside another person such an egregious sin. To recognize the power of God in another person is no longer to view them as a statistic or a project. It is to see them as people filled with the creative power of God. People of God who, by the way, have a name. Ruth is the story of a destitute widow and a wealthy landowner, both of whom refuse to let the systems of their day rob them of the chance to see one another as beloved and named by God, as the created people of God. Neither poverty nor property would get in the way of that. As The story winds down, we know that Boaz accepts Ruth's proposal and they come together, they lock eyes, they name each other by name. Scripture tells us they paired their bodies and their lives together in the most intimate way, and they have a son together. Did you know that Ruth's story ends with the same two verses that appear in the opening passages of the New Testament, that Ruth and Boaz have a child together who is named in the closing genealogy, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. David is significant, we know, because Jesus comes to us through the line of David. This is a direct connection to the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. But notice now, these same words are found in the first book of the first chapter of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, do you notice what is different in these genealogies? The New Testament opens with the mention of Ruth by name. She is mentioned by name in the genealogy of Jesus. Your name on a list at this time, it meant that the creative power and the movement of God in your life was recognized. It meant your struggle was known and your voice was was heard. Andy Crouch writes this, life is power and power is life and flourishing power leads to flourishing life. Of course, like life itself, power is nothing. It's worse than nothing without love, but love without power is less than it was meant to be. Love without the capacity to make something of the world, without the ability to respond to and make room for the beloved's flourishing is frustrated love. And from the ashes of loss and tragedy and frustrated love, Ruth and Boaz make the decision together to flourish and to shape together an unexpected future. And the Lord Almighty sees this, honors this, and calls them by name. Their ethos and partnership is part of the DNA that God gave to them that would eventually bear the full fruit in, bear its full fruit in Jesus. And Jesus, we can argue, was perhaps the most power-filled human being ever to walk the earth. He had the power of God in him, yet his commitment was to the flourishing of others we, my friends, are a named people. When we stand in the ashes and advocate for others and confess and lament our shortcomings and commit to the flourishing of those around us, when we look for the divine in the heart of others, when we call the creative friends, and strangers alike by name, we stand also then in this genealogy. We stand in thousands of generations of history who have reached out and partnered together for the flourishing of one another and for the flourishing of all humankind. My friends, this week may we find our names then in the lineage of Jesus. May we stand with one another. May we dare to call people by name and honor God's creative power and purposes in them so, like Ruth, we might one day find our names in the sacred lineage of having done the work of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for shaping us through this book. Thank you for gifting us with ears to hear and eyes to see. Thank you, Lord, for the simple gift of technology today where we can study together even though we are apart. Lord, may your blessing now be with us. Through thousands of generations, Lord, may our names and the names of every human being on this planet we share may we all be found together lord walking up out of the ashes calling one another by name and honoring the divine and creative power that lives and moves inside each one of us lord to your glory we pray these things and the church today wherever we are we say together Amen.
0: favor be upon you, and a thousand generations, and your family, and your children, and their children, and their children. May his presence go before you, and behind you, and beside you, all around you, and within you. He is with you, he is with you, in the morning, in the evening. Glory, you're weeping, and rejoicing, he's for you, please for you, please for you.
3: Friends, as we end our time together and we head out to make our way through the ashes of our time, go with joy and go with hope, knowing that we do not go alone into this world. We go with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we go with the love of God And we go with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in this moment we share and forevermore. Amen.